0: Chapter six Part one of Queen Victoria This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org. Queen Victoria by Giles Lytton Strachey Chapter six Part One Chapter six Last Years of Prince Consort one. The weak-willed youth who took no interest in politics and never read a newspaper had grown into a man of unbending determination whose tireless energies were incessantly concentrated upon the laborious business of government and the highest questions of state. He was busy now from morning till night in the winter before the dawn he was to be seen seated at his writing-table working by the light of the green reading-lamp which he had brought over with him from germany and the construction of which he had much improved by an ingenious device victoria was early too but she was not so early as albert and when in the chill darkness she took her seat at her own writing-table, placed side by side with his, she invariably found upon it a neat pile of papers arranged for her inspection and her signature. The day thus begun continued in unremitting industry. At breakfast, the newspapers, the once-hated newspapers, made their appearance, and the prince, absorbed in their perusal would answer no questions, or, if an article struck him, He would read it aloud. After that, there were ministers and secretaries to interview. There was a vast correspondence to be carried on. There were numerous memoranda to be made. Victoria, treasuring every word, preserving every letter, was all breathless attention and eager obedience. Sometimes Albert would actually ask her advice. He consulted her about his English. Lese recht aufmerksam und sage, wenn ein Fehler ist, he would say. Note. Read this carefully and tell me if there are any mistakes in it. End of note. Or, as he handed her a draft for her signature, he would observe. Ich habe dir hier ein Draft gemacht. Lese es mal. Ich dachte, es war recht so. Note. Here is a draft I have made for you. Read it. I should think this would do. End of note. Thus the diligent, scrupulous, absorbing hours passed by. Fewer and fewer grew the moments of recreation and of exercise. The demands of society were narrowed down to the smallest limits, and even then, but grudgingly, attended to. It was no longer a mere pleasure. It was a positive necessity to go to bed as early as possible, in order to be up and at work on the morrow betimes the important and exacting business of government which became at last the dominating preoccupation in albert's mind still left unimpaired his old tastes and interests he remained devoted to art to science to philosophy and a multitude of subsidiary activities showed how his energies increased as the demands upon them grew for whenever duty called the prince was all alertness With indefatigable perseverance he opened museums, laid the foundation stones of hospitals, made speeches to the Royal Agricultural Society, and attended meetings of the British Association. The National Gallery particularly interested him. He drew up careful regulations for the arrangement of the pictures according to schools, and he attempted, though in vain, to have the whole collection transported to South Kensington. Theodora, Now the Princess Hohenloa, after a visit to England, expressed in a letter to Victoria her admiration of Albert, both as a private and a public character. Nor did she rely only on her own opinion. "'I must just copy out,' she said, "'what Mr. Clump wrote to me some little time ago, and which is quite true.' Prince Albert is one of the few royal personages who can sacrifice to any principle, as soon as it has become evident to them to be good and noble, all those notions or sentiments to which others, owing to their narrow-mindedness or to the prejudices of their rank, are so thoroughly inclined strongly to cling. "'There's something so truly religious in this,' the princess added, "'as well as humane and just.' most soothing to my feelings, which are so often hurt and disturbed by what I hear and see." Victoria, from the depth of her heart, subscribed to all the eulogies of Feodora and Mr. Clump. She only found that they were insufficient as she watched her beloved Albert after toiling with state documents and public functions, devoting every spare moment of his time to domestic duties, to artistic appreciation, and to intellectual improvements, as she listened to him cracking his jokes at the luncheon-table, or playing Mendelssohn on the organ, or pointing out the merits of Sir Edwin Landseer's pictures, as she followed him round while he gave instructions about the breeding of cattle or decided that the gainsboroughs must be hung higher up so that the winter halters might be properly seen she felt perfectly certain that no other wife had ever had such a husband his mind was apparently capable of everything and she was hardly surprised to learn that he had made an important discovery for the conversion of sewage into agricultural manure. Filtration from below upwards, he explained, through some appropriate medium, which retained the solids and set free the fluid sewage for irrigation, was the principle of the scheme. All previous plans, he said, would have cost millions. Mine costs next to nothing. Unfortunately, owing to a slight miscalculation, the invention proved to be impracticable. But Albert's intelligence was unrebuffed and he passed on to plunge with all his accustomed ardor into a prolonged study of the rudiments of lithography. But naturally it was upon his children that his private interests and those of Victoria were concentrated most vigorously. The royal nurseries showed no sign of emptying. The birth of the Prince Arthur in 1850 was followed three years later by that of the Prince Leopold, and in 1857 the Princess Beatrice was born. A family of nine must be, in any circumstances, a grave responsibility, and the prince realized to the full how much the high destinies of his offspring intensified the need of parental care. It was inevitable that he should believe profoundly in the importance of education. He himself had been the product of education. Stockmar had made him what he was, it was for him in his turn to be a stockmar to be even more than a stockmar to the young creatures he had brought into the world victoria would assist him a stockmar no doubt she could hardly be but she could be perpetually vigilant she could mingle strictness with her affection she could always set a good example these considerations of course applied pre-eminently to the education of the Prince of Wales How tremendous was the significance of every particle of influence which went to the making of the future king of England! Albert set to work with a will. But, watching with Victoria the minutest details of the physical, intellectual, and moral training of his children, he soon perceived to his distress that there was something unsatisfactory in the development of his eldest son. The Princess Royal was an extremely intelligent child. But Bertie, though he was good-humored and gentle, seemed to display a deep-seated repugnance to every form of mental exertion. This was most regrettable, but the remedy was obvious. The parental efforts must be redoubled. Instruction must be multiplied. Not for a single instant must the educational pressure be allowed to relax. Accordingly, more tutors were selected. The curriculum was revised, the timetable of studies was rearranged, elaborate memoranda dealing with every possible contingency were drawn up. It was above all essential that there should be no slackness. Work, said the prince, must be work. And work indeed it was. The boy grew up amid a ceaseless round of paradigms, syntactical exercises, dates, genealogical tables, and lists of capes. Constant notes flew backwards and forwards between the prince, the queen, and the tutors, with inquiries, with reports of progress, with detailed recommendations, and these notes were all carefully preserved for future reference. It was besides vital that the heir to the throne should be protected from the slightest possibility of contamination from the outside world. The Prince of Wales was not as other boys. HE MIGHT OCCASIONALLY BE ALLOWED TO INVITE SOME SONS OF THE NOBILITY, BOYS OF GOOD CHARACTER, TO PLAY WITH HIM IN THE GARDEN OF BUCKINGHAM PALACE. BUT HIS FATHER PRESIDED, WITH ALARMING PRECISION, OVER THEIR SPORTS. IN SHORT, EVERY POSSIBLE PRECAUTION WAS TAKEN, EVERY CONCEIVABLE EFFORT WAS MADE, YET, STRANGE TO SAY, THE OBJECT OF ALL THIS VIGILANCE AND SOLICITUDE CONTINUED TO BE UNSATISFACTORY appeared, in fact, to be positively growing worse. It was certainly very odd. The more lessons that Bertie had to do, the less he did them. And the more carefully he was guarded against excitements and frivolities, the more desirous of mere amusement he seemed to become. Albert was deeply grieved, and Victoria was sometimes very angry. But grief and anger produced no more effect than supervision and timetables. The Prince of Wales, in spite of everything, grew up into manhood without the faintest sign of adherence to and perseverance in the plan both of studies and life, as one of the royal memoranda put it, which had been laid down with such extraordinary forethought by his father. Two. Against the insidious worries of politics, the boredom of society functions, and the pompous publicity of state ceremonies, Osborne had afforded a welcome refuge, but it soon appeared that even Osborne was too little removed from the world. After all, the Solent was a feeble barrier. Oh, for some distant, some almost inaccessible sanctuary, where in true domestic privacy one could make happy holiday, just as if or at least very, very nearly one were anybody else. Victoria, ever since together with Albert she had visited Scotland in the early years of her marriage, had felt that her heart was in the highlands. She had returned to them a few years later, and her passion had grown. How romantic they were, and how Albert enjoyed them too. His spirits rose quite wonderfully as soon as he found himself among the hills and the conifers. "'It is a happiness to see him,' she wrote. "'Oh, what can equal the beauties of nature?' she exclaimed in her journal during one of these visits. "'What enjoyment there is in them! "'Albert enjoys it so much he is in ecstasies here.' "'Albert said,' she noted next day, "'that the chief beauty of mountain scenery "'consists in its frequent changes. "'We came home at six o'clock.' Then she went on a longer expedition, up to the very top of a high hill. It was quite romantic. Here we were with only this Highlander behind us holding the ponies, for we got off twice and walked about. We came home at half-past eleven. The most delightful, most romantic ride and walk I ever had. I had never been up such a mountain, and then the day was so fine. The Highlanders, too, were such astonishing people. They never make difficulties, she noted, but are cheerful and happy and merry and ready to walk and run and do anything. As for Albert, he highly appreciated the good reading, simplicity and intelligence which make it so pleasant and even instructive to talk to them. We were always in the habit, wrote Her Majesty, of conversing with the Highlanders, with whom one comes so much in contact in the Highlands. She loved everything about them, their customs, their dress, their dances, even their musical instruments. There were nine pipers at the castle, she wrote, after staying with Lord Breddlebane. Sometimes one and sometimes three played. They always played about breakfast time, again during the morning, at luncheon, and also whenever we went in and out, again before dinner and during most of the dinner time. We both have become quite fond of the bagpipes." It was quite impossible not to wish to return to such pleasures again and again, and in 1848 the Queen took a lease of Balmoral House, a small residence near Braemar in the wilds of Aberdeenshire. Four years later she bought the place outright. Now she could be really happy every summer. Now she could be simple and at her ease. Now she could be romantic every evening and dote upon Albert without a single distraction all day long the diminutive scale of the house was in itself a charm. Nothing was more amusing than to find oneself living in two or three little sitting-rooms, with the children crammed away upstairs, and the minister in attendance with only a tiny bedroom to do all his work in, and then to be able to run in and out of doors as one liked, and to sketch and to walk and to watch the red deer coming so surprisingly close, and to pay visits to the cottagers, and occasionally one could be more adventurous still. One could go and stay for a night or two at the Bothy at Alt a mere couple of huts with a wooden addition, and only eleven people in the whole party. And there were mountains to be climbed and cairns to be built in solemn pomp. At last, when the cairn, which is, I think, seven or eight feet high, was nearly completed, Albert climbed up to the top of it and placed the last stone. "'after which three cheers were given. "'It was a gay, pretty, and touching sight, "'and I felt almost inclined to cry. "'The view was so beautiful over the dear hills, "'the day so fine, the whole so gemütlich.' "'And in the evening there were sword dances and reels. "'But Albert had determined to pull down the little old house "'and to build in its place a castle of his own designing. "'With great ceremony,' In accordance with the memorandum drawn up by the prince for the occasion, the foundation stone of the new edifice was laid, and by 1855 it was habitable. Spacious, built of granite in the Scotch baronial style, with a tower one hundred feet high and minor turrets and castellated gables, the castle was skillfully arranged to command the finest views of the surrounding mountains and of the neighboring River Dee. Upon the interior decorations, Albert and Victoria lavished all their care. The wall and the floors were of pitch pine, and covered with specially manufactured tartans. The Balmoral tartan in red and gray, designed by the prince, and the Victoria tartan with a white stripe, designed by the queen, were to be seen in every room. There were tartan curtains and tartan chair covers, and even tartan linoleums. Occasionally the royal Stuart tartan appeared, for Her Majesty always maintained that she was an ardent Jacobite. Water-color sketches by Victoria hung upon the walls, together with innumerable stag's antlers, and the head of a boar which had been shot by Albert in Germany. In an alcove in the hall stood a life-size statue of Albert, in highland dress. Victoria declared that it was perfection. Every year, she wrote... My heart becomes more fixed in this dear paradise, and so much more so now, that all has become my dear Albert's own creation, own work, own building, own layout, and his great taste and the impress of his dear hand have been stamped everywhere, and here in very truth her happiest days were past. In after-years, when she looked back upon them, a kind of glory, a radiance as of an unearthly holiness seemed to glow about these golden hours. Each hallowed moment stood out, clear, beautiful, eternally significant. For at the time every experience there, sentimental or grave or trivial, had come upon her with a peculiar vividness, like a flashing of marvellous lights. Albert's stockings— an evening walk when she lost her way, Vicky sitting down on a wasp's nest, a torchlight dance, with what intensity such things and ten thousand like them impressed themselves upon her eager consciousness, and how she flew to her journal to note them down, the news of the Duke's death, what a moment, when as she sat sketching after a picnic by a lock in the lonely hills, Lord Derby's letter had been brought to her, and she had learnt that England's or rather Britain's pride, her glory, her hero, the greatest man she had ever produced, was no more. For such were her reflections upon the old rebel of former days. But that past had been utterly obliterated. No faintest memory of it remained. For years she had looked up to the Duke as a figure almost superhuman. Had he not been a supporter of good Sir Robert? Had he not asked Albert to succeed him as commander-in-chief? And what a proud moment it had been when he stood as sponsor to her son Arthur who was born on his 81st birthday. So now she filled a whole page of her diary with panegyrical regrets. His position was the highest a subject ever had, above party, looked up to by all, revered by the whole nation, the friend of the sovereign, THE CROWN NEVER POSSESSED, AND I FEAR NEVER WILL, SO DEVOTED, LOYAL, AND FAITHFUL A SUBJECT, SO STAUNCH A SUPPORTER. TO US HIS LOSS IS IRREPARABLE. TO ALBERT HE SHOWED THE GREATEST KINDNESS AND THE UTMOST CONFIDENCE. NOT AN EYE WILL BE DRY IN THE WHOLE COUNTRY. THESE WERE SERIOUS THOUGHTS, BUT THEY WERE SOON SUCCEEDED BY OTHERS HARDLY LESS MOVING, BY EVENTS AS IMPOSSIBLE TO FORGET, by Mr. McLeod's sermon on Nicodemus, by the gift of a red-flannel petticoat to Mrs. P. Farquharson, and another to old Kitty Keir. But without doubt most memorable, most delightful of all, were the expeditions, the rare exciting expeditions up distant mountains, across broad rivers, through strange country, and lasting several days. With only two gillies, Grant and Brown for servants, and with assumed names, It was more like something in a story than real life. We had decided to call ourselves Lord and Lady Churchill and Party, Lady Churchill passing as Miss Spencer and General Gray as Dr. Gray. Brown once forgot this and called me Your Majesty as I was getting into the carriage, and Grant on the box once called Albert Your Royal Highness, which set us off laughing, but no one observed it. Strong, "'vigorous, enthusiastic, "'bringing, so it seemed, good fortune with her. "'The Highlanders declared she had a lucky foot. "'She relished everything, "'the scrambles and the views and the contretemps "'and the rough inns with their coarse fare "'and Brown and Grant waiting at table. "'She could have gone on forever and ever, "'absolutely happy, with Albert beside her "'and Brown at her pony's head. "'But the time came for turning homewards, alas!' The time came for going back to England. She could hardly bear it. She sat disconsolate in her room and watched the snow falling. The last day—oh, if only she could be snowed up! 3. The Crimean War brought new experiences, and most of them were pleasant ones. It was pleasant to be patriotic and pugnacious, to look out appropriate prayers to be read in the churches to have news of glorious victories, and to know oneself more proudly than ever the representative of England. With that spontaneity of feeling which was so peculiarly her own, Victoria poured out her emotion, her admiration, her pity, her love, upon her dear soldiers. When she gave them their medals, her exultation knew no bounds. Noble fellows, she wrote to the king of the Belgians, I own, I feel, as if these were my own children. My heart beats for them as for my nearest and dearest. They were so touched, so pleased. Many, I hear, cried, and they won't hear of giving up their medals to have their names engraved upon them for fear they should not receive the identical one put into their hands by me, which is quite touching. Several came by in a sadly mutilated state she and they were at one. They felt that she had done them a splendid honor, and she, with perfect genuineness, shared their feeling. Albert's attitude toward such things was different. There was an austerity in him which quite prohibited the expansions of emotion. When General Williams returned from the heroic defense of cars and was presented at court, The quick, stiff, distant bow with which the prince received him struck like ice upon the beholders. He was a stranger, still. But he had other things to occupy him, more important, surely, than the personal impressions of military officers and people who went to court. He was at work, ceaselessly at work, on the tremendous task of carrying through the war to a successful conclusion. State papers, dispatches, memoranda poured from him in an overwhelming stream. Between 1853 and 1857, fifty folio volumes were filled with the comments of his pen upon the eastern question. Nothing would induce him to stop. Weary ministers staggered under the load of his advice, but his advice continued, piling itself up over their writing tables and flowing out upon them from red box after red box. Nor was it advice to be ignored. The talent for administration which had reorganized the royal palaces and planned the great exhibition asserted itself no less in the confused complexities of war. Again and again the prince's suggestions, rejected or unheeded at first, were adopted under the stress of circumstances and found to be full of value. The enrollment of a foreign legion, the establishment of a depot for troops at Malta, the institution of periodical reports and tabulated returns as to the condition of the army at Sebastopol, such were the contrivances and the achievements of his indefatigable brain. He went further— In a lengthy minute, he laid down the lines for a radical reform in the entire administration of the army. This was premature, but his proposal that a camp of evolution should be created in which troops should be concentrated and drilled proved to be the germ of Aldershot. Meanwhile, Victoria had made a new friend. She had suddenly been captivated by Napoleon III. Her dislike of him had been strong at first. She considered that he was a disreputable adventurer who had usurped the throne of poor old Louis-Philippe. And besides, he was hand-in-glove with Lord Palmerston. For a long time, although he was her ally, she was unwilling to meet him. But at last a visit of the Emperor and Empress to England was arranged. Directly he appeared at Windsor, her heart began to soften she found that she was charmed by his quiet manners, his low soft voice, and by the soothing simplicity of his conversation. The goodwill of England was essential to the emperor's position in Europe, and he had determined to fascinate the queen. He succeeded. There was something deep within her which responded immediately and vehemently to natures that offered a romantic contrast with her own. Her adoration of Lord Melbourne, was intimately interwoven with her half-unconscious appreciation of the exciting unlikeness between herself and that sophisticated, subtle, aristocratical old man. Very different was the quality of her unlikeness to Napoleon, but its quantity was at least as great. From behind the vast solidity of her respectability, her conventionality, her established happiness, she peered out with a strange, delicious pleasure at that unfamiliar, darkly glittering foreign object moving so meteorically before her, an ambiguous creature of willfulness and destiny. And to her surprise, where she had dreaded antagonisms, she discovered only sympathies. He was, she said, so quiet, so simple, naïve even, so pleased to be informed about things he does not know, so gentle so full of tact dignity and modesty so full of kind attention toward us never saying a word or doing a thing which could put me out there is something fascinating melancholy and engaging which draws you to him in spite of any prevention you may have against him and certainly without the assistance of any outward appearance though i like his face she observed that he rode extremely well, and looks well on horseback as he sits high. And he danced, with great dignity and spirit. Above all, he listened to Albert, listened with the most respectful attention, showed, in fact, how pleased he was to be informed about things he did not know, and afterwards was heard to declare that he had never met the prince's equal. On one occasion, indeed, but only on one, he had seemed to grow slightly restive in a diplomatic conversation i expatiated a little on the holstein question wrote the prince in a memorandum which appeared to bore the emperor as très compliqué. victoria too became much attached to the empress whose looks and graces she admired without a touch of jealousy eugenie indeed in the plenitude of her beauty exquisitely dressed in wonderful Parisian crinolines which set off to perfection her tall and willowy figure, might well have caused some heart-burning in the breast of her hostess, who, very short, rather stout, quite plain, in garish middle-class garments, could hardly be expected to feel at her best in such company. But Victoria had no misgivings. To her it mattered nothing that her face turned red in the heat and that her purple pork-pie hat was of last year's fashion, while Eugenie, cool and modish, floated in an infinitude of flounces by her side. She was Queen of England, and was not that enough? It certainly seemed to be. True Majesty was hers, and she knew it. More than once, when the two were together in public, it was the woman to whom, as it seemed, nature and art had given so little— who, by the sheer force of an inherent grandeur, completely threw her adorned and beautiful companion into the shade. There were tears when the moment came for parting, and Victoria felt, quite wehmütig as her guests went away from Windsor. But before long she and Albert paid a return visit to France, where everything was very delightful, and she drove incognito through the streets of Paris, in a common bonnet, and saw a play in a theatre at St. Cloud, and one evening at a great party given by the emperor in her honour at the Chateau of Versailles, talked a little to a distinguished-looking Prussian gentleman whose name was Bismarck. Her rooms were furnished so much to her taste that she declared they gave her quite a home feeling, that if her little dog were there, she should really imagine herself at home. Nothing was said, but three days later her little dog barked a welcome to her as she entered the apartments. The emperor himself, sparing neither trouble nor expense, had personally arranged the charming surprise. Such were his attentions. She returned to England more enchanted than ever. Strange indeed, she exclaimed, are the dispensations and ways of providence. The alliance prospered and the war drew towards a conclusion. Both the queen and the prince, it is true, were most anxious that there should not be a premature peace. When Lord Aberdeen wished to open negotiations, Albert attacked him in a Gehannishten letter, while Victoria rode about on horseback reviewing the troops. At last, however, Sebastopol was captured The news reached Balmoral late at night, and in a few minutes, Albert and all the gentlemen in every species of attire sallied forth, followed by all the servants, and gradually by all the population of the village keepers, gillies, workmen, up to the top of the cairn. A bonfire was lighted, the pipes were played, and guns were shot off. About three-quarters of an hour after, Albert came down and said the scene had been wild and exciting beyond everything. The people had been drinking healths in whiskey and were in great ecstasy. The great ecstasy, perhaps, would be replaced by other feelings next morning. But at any rate, the war was over, though to be sure its end seemed as difficult to account for as its beginning. The dispensations and ways of providence continued to be strange. End of chapter 6, part 1